This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll take a close-up look at politics on the ground in one swing state. D.D. Guttenplan spent a week traveling across Ohio. He'll tell us what he found. Also, the nation's great columnist Gary Young has a new book out. It's about all the children killed by guns on one typical day in America. The day he picked, there were 10 children killed by guns. The book is titled Another Day in the Death of America. I have to say it's the saddest and and most horrifying book I've read in a long time. We'll talk with Gary Young later in this hour. But first, Trump Talk with Katha Pollitt poet, essayist, columnist for The Nation. Her most recent book is Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. A heads up for our listeners. In this segment, we quote Donald Trump, which means we use some strong language and discuss mature topics. If you have kids in the car, you might want to save this for later. Katha, the political ground continues to shake after the release of that tape on Friday of Donald Trump talking in 2005 about women, quote, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything, close quote. My question for you is, why was this so much worse than all the other terrible things Trump has said and done? You know, Hillary has been running an ad of girls looking in the mirror while on the soundtrack we hear Donald Trump saying horribly crude things about women's bodies. And of course, there was his racist lie about Obama being born in Kenya, his threat to ban Muslims, his calling Mexicans rapists. Why was this the thing that had such a huge impact and led especially so many Republicans to abandon his candidacy? That's a fascinating question, John, and I wish I had a better answer. I know some people would say it's because here he was clearly referring to white women, attractive, you know, upper class or whatever, white women. But, you know, one of the first awful things he did was attack Megyn Kelly, the supreme white conservative goddess. Yeah. So, and he said other awful things that were, Rosie O'Donnell, white woman, Hillary Clinton, white woman. So I don't think that that is really what it is. I think that here Donald Trump was attacking a constituency that the Republicans really need at this point, which earlier on wasn't so clear that they would, uh, to the same extent, white women, suburban women, uh, good women who don't like to hear words like pussy referred to as being other than a kitty cat. And uh, whereas the other, uh, most of the other constituencies that he's insulted, black people, Latinos, Muslims, 
etc., are are not going to vote for him. Uh, we're never going to vote for him in, in large numbers. But this, I think, really strikes at a constituency the Republicans need. There's one other factor that some people have pointed to, which it was in on this tape. He's not just saying rude, nasty, obnoxious things about women. He is describing kissing women without their consent, grabbing their genitals, as Anderson Cooper said at the beginning of the second debate. That is sexual assault. You bragged that you have sexually assaulted women. So this is him talking about his behavior, not just his thoughts. Right. Well, there's that, too. Um, although Jeff Sessions would disagree with you and Anderson <laughs> Cooper that uh, grab them by the pussy is uh, a description of a sexual assault. So. Je- Jeff Sessions, let us just say, is a Republican senator from Alabama who actually is a lawyer, so he should know what the law is about uh, well, sexual assault. Maybe the law is different in Alabama. <laughs> actually, it isn't. Rachel Maddow checked the law in Alabama, oh, just, uh-huh. just to make sure on that point. You know, there's one other fascinating factor in understanding why this had such a big effect. The NBC Survey Monkey uh, poll shows it had a much bigger effect on men than on women. Women already didn't like Trump. It was men who, who were the ones who were really changed their minds uh, about supporting Trump as a result of this. I guess we shouldn't be surprised by that. Another poll showed that uh, 8% of Republican voters are, are more enthusiastic than before yeah. about voting for Donald Trump. So you wonder, who are those people? Somebody should call them up. Um, <laughs> but it might be that they're just saying, oh, screw you. Of course, I'm voting for Donald Trump. This is all a lot of nonsense. Not, oh, sexual assault. Yeah. Finally, we talk about something I care about. <laughs> And I thought it was so interesting the way they all said, you know, as a father, as a husband, you know, it's like if I was a single man with no children, <laughs> I wouldn't care. <laughs> That's the tape. Then we get to the, the second debate on, on Sunday. The, the big picture here. This, as you say, this is the first woman to run for president. This is this, only the second debate in American history involving a woman candidate for president. And she has to confront the worst kind of misogyny in, in front of 66 million people, this, this menacing guy, this hate-filled man who says he can sexually assault women because he's powerful, and then he threatens to put Hillary in, in jail. This is what the first woman to run for president has to put up with, and she has to stay calm and collected. She's supposed to smile, not fight back too much. It's revolting. It was a terrible uh, thing to have to watch. Nobody should have to put up with this. Well, yes, this is true. And you just, I mean, she must just have a a constitution of steel. She has a lot of stamina, that woman. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you've got these people at Trump rallies, you know, not just shouting lock her up, but, you know, Hillary sucks, but not like Monica, Trump's a bitch, you know, and even worse. And these are, you know, these are, we have this whole getting back a minute with the, uh, you know, I'm a husband and father thing. These are men who are husbands and fathers wearing their Hillary sucks, but not like Monica shirt. What are they thinking? And how lucky we are that Hillary Clinton is making a pathway for other women. So Trump's first defense of this was that uh, it, it was locker room talk. We've, we have said, well, actually, it was more than locker room talk. It was bragging about sexually assaulting women. He did have a second defense in the debate about saying you can grab them by the pussy. When Anderson Cooper pressed him, he said, 
quote, you know, we have a world where you, you have ISIS chopping off heads, close quote. So he says ISIS chopping off heads is worse than talking about grabbing women by the pussy. I wonder if you agree with Trump about that. To say I'm not as bad as ISIS <laughs> <laughs> is something that most of us could stipulate to, um, but it doesn't really it doesn't really let you off the hook. So uh, Trump held uh, a surprise press conference before the debate with three women who claimed to have been sexual victims of Bill Clinton. The L.A. Times editorial called this, quote, a sickening stunt. Uh, But I wonder if you think there is any merit in us reconsidering the arguments of women who claim they were victimized sexually by Bill Clinton uh, before back in the 90s or earlier. You know, I'm sorry, Hillary Clinton is did not cause her husband to do these things, whatever he did. She did not enable him. She, he is not running for president. And the idea, I mean, behind all this is, really is the idea that this is all Hillary Clinton's fault. Bill's philanderings are Hillary Clinton's fault because a good wife would have kept him happier in bed so he wouldn't do these things. That's what that's all about. Um, and I think that's a disgusting idea. You're absolutely right. But there's one woman who Trump brought forward who's got a different case. Yes. This is uh, Kathy Shelton, who brought a claim of rape when she was, when she, as a 12-year-old, she claimed to have been raped. And Hillary Clinton was the legal aid, was assigned to her, uh, defend the accused man as a legal aid lawyer. So Kathy Shelton believes that Hillary Clinton was completely unfair and attacked her as a victim, uh, you know, in sexist ways. You know, lawyers can be pretty brutal, uh, defense lawyers, when you're defending a rape-accused perpetrator. But some of the things that Kathy Shelton said are have been shown not to be true. For example, she said, oh, and I was put through psychiatric examination, and they asked me the same questions again and again and again. It was just so awful and such torture, and it was worse than the rape itself. But in fact, she never, that never happened. And it's also true that she was paid to appear at that news conference. So I think that there's some kind of thing that happens where you invest yourself in a position and then you, you start thinking about it in a different way. Um, because at the time, Katie, Kathy Shelton was not upset by Hillary Clinton's behavior, but now she is. So I think that um, I think Hillary Clinton had no choice but to take that case. She was told to. And, um, and in fact, I read that she tried to get out of it. and they tried, Yes, she tried to get out of it. So we've talked about the de- what was in the debate. I think we also need to talk just for a couple of minutes about what was not in the debate uh, that's of interest to us. And that is a lot of this stuff that's, that WikiLeaks has been releasing, apparently with help from Russian hackers, about Hillary's Wall Street uh, speech. Our friend Linda Gordon, the feminist historian, posted on Facebook, In the speech, Hillary praised an austerity plan that would require cuts to Social Security. She endorsed unrestricted trade agreements. She pronounced it an oversimplification to blame the 2000 crash on Wall Street. And she complained of bias against what she called successful people. Are you disturbed, as Linda Gordon was, by what WikiLeaks has revealed about Hillary's speeches on Wall Street? I'm not as disturbed as Linda was. Uh, I, I read those, I, those passages a little differently. 
I think that, you know, when Hillary said, you know, I'd like to see open trade and open borders, that's what the European Union is. And if what she meant was, yes, I'd like to see a day in the future when Latin America and the United States are so, you know, so closely related economically and they're doing so well that we can just be one big happy family. Um, that doesn't seem so terrible. It's a utopian vision. Left Leftists are supposed to like utopians, utopian visions. So uh, I guess I feel like, of course, I wish that she hadn't given those speeches. And of course, you know, she is what she said she was. She's a center right to center left. But those speeches to me don't tell us anywhere near as much about what she will do as Linda thinks. I don't think it's like, oh, here's my secret plan, <laughs> cut Social Security. I think she's a, Hillary Clinton is like most politicians, movable according to which way the wind is blowing, where the power is and, and how the, you know, what kinds of pressure are being placed on her. And I, what I do not understand, John, is if I were a Bernie Sanders supporter from the beginning, I would say, oh, big success for me. I have moved the entire party way over to the left. I have shown that there's a huge segment of the Republican Party, uh, sorry, the Democratic Party, like 40 percent, that is much further to the left than anybody thought, anybody thought or that, that they had a way of expressing themselves, and now they do. And that is really great. We have transformed the party, and we will continue to hold their feet to the fire. Why is that not what they're saying? Why is it instead, oh, evil Hillary Clinton is going to, is going to betray us? Of course she will try to betray you. She'll try to betray people on the right, too. That's what politicians do. My conclusion from the WikiLeaks uh, revelations about Hillary's Wall Street speeches is this shows what we need to organize about the day after the uh, election. Exactly. Exactly. Katha Pollitt, using some strong language in discussing mature topics, reader at The Nation. Katha, it's always great to have you on the show. Those were immature topics, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> We're always great to talk to you, John. Now it's time for our report from the grassroots in Ohio with D.D. Guttenplan. He's the nation's editor at large, and he's covered this campaign since the beginning. Ohio is always a key swing state in presidential elections. Trump has to win Ohio. Clinton really wants to win Ohio. Obama in 2008 set a new standard for identifying and motivating voters. And that year he got almost 3 million votes in Ohio, which was the highest total in the state's history. He got almost the same in 2012, but now it's 2016. Don, you recently spent a week driving across Ohio from Cleveland at one end to Cincinnati at the other end. You talked to activists, party officials, Trump volunteers, Clinton volunteers, and swing voters. Basically, what did you learn? Well, I learned that uh, 2016 is not the same as 2012. Obama won the state by 100,000 votes in 2008, and he increased that margin in 2012, basically by turning out huge numbers of African-American voters in the city, in the cities, uh, so in Cleveland and in Cincinnati, his margins were both higher than his statewide margin, uh, and in Columbus as well, and also turning out vast numbers of millennial voters. He had, uh, he had 
field offices in every county in the state. I think there's 86 counties in Ohio. He had a field office in every county. Clinton, at last count, has 60 offices in the state, and we're only a month away from the election. And uh, wherever I went, I did not detect anything like the same enthusiasm, often from people who had participated in the 2008 or 2012 races. So I would say that when I left Ohio, which at this point was about 10 days ago, there was a real enthusiasm gap. And also when I left Ohio, Clinton was five points back in the polls. Now that has shifted drastically in the last week. So at some point in this conversation, we should get to what's changed in the last yeah. week. But definitely what, what I found was a state where uh, the organization was in place. There was a ground game, but the voters were pretty indifferent. Don, you open your Ohio report in Columbus in a black barbershop, of course, a legendary place for smart political talk. What were they saying? Well, I spoke to Al Edmondson, who's the owner and proprietor of A Cut Above the Rest, which is a barbershop on the east side of Columbus. Uh, he's got five chairs, no waiting. And uh, he's someone who's he basically can't stand to stand aside and let others do things. So, you know, he is active. He's been helping people to register. He's, uh, he helped stage a, a basketball game between rival high schools where you had to be registered to vote to get in. Uh, but he said he just doesn't see anything like the levels of in involvement or enthusiasm that he saw in 2012 when he was worried. Ohio is a part of the Rust Belt in America, the kind of... Uh place where we are told older white men have become angry Trump supporters. Did you run into any of them? I ran into several thousand of them in Canton when I went to a Trump rally, which was filled with angry white men and angry white women. I would say that you, you, you could say it was basically filled with white people. I was trying to, to count Trump supporters of color, and I, I didn't use up all the fingers of one hand, and there were 6,000 people in the room. Wow. But I think that, that it's much too simplistic to call uh, Trump supporters angry white people. I mean, yes, there are, there are lots of angry white people among them, but there are also people who have been left behind by globalization and who feel that the Democratic Party has offered them nothing and done nothing for them. And the thing is that um, it may be that these people are only found in Ohio, but I don't think so. I've come across voters like that in western Pennsylvania. There are plenty of voters like that in West Virginia. There are plenty of voters like that in Kentucky. And there are plenty of voters like that in other states. So part of it is disaffection with globalization. I think that's a big part of the Trump phenomenon. But as I say in the piece, Hillary Clinton really has two opponents in Ohio. One of them is Donald Trump, but the other is despair. And it's despair that are, that's keeping her numbers down, that's keeping turn, that, would, that is potentially keeping turnout down, and that is potentially limiting, limiting enthusiasm. And it may be that as she has gained on Donald Trump due to his own mis, misfortunes, missteps, and mistakes in, in the past few days, she's also gaining on despair. That is possible. We saw a huge Clinton rally, really the only huge rally of her campaign so far, in Columbus on Monday, she had 18,500 people. Now, she's never done that before. So that was an interesting thing to see. And the Clinton campaign has also sent Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to Ohio. Uh, what did you see of their efforts? Well, I caught Elizabeth Warren at, at Ohio State in Columbus. 
where she gave a, uh, the best political speech I've heard this year, a real stem winder, summing up the, the history of inequality in American life, and yet bringing uh, this room full of people to, to their feet repeatedly. But And it's also interesting because, you know, there have been media accounts in the last two weeks saying that uh, Clinton and the Democrats had written off Ohio. And if you look at the surrogates they have sent, uh, not just Warren and Sanders, who were there last week, but President Obama, who's going to be in the state twice this week, they clearly feel that Ohio is winnable uh, and are pouring a lot of surrogate energy Clinton herself has been there repeatedly in the last few days, and they're spending a lot of money on television there. So I think it's too soon to write off Ohio in this election for the Clinton campaign because they seem to be coming back in Ohio. I've read that the only real Republican organization in Ohio capable of actually turning out the vote is John Kasich, the Republican governor, and he famously is not working for Trump. That sounds like it should have a huge effect on the Republican campaign. Well, you would think that, but I didn't find it. I mean, I did find people who who said, you know, Kasich is not lifting a finger. And I did not find a Trump ground organization in the state. What I found was the Republican Party organization in the state. Kasich is the titular head of the Republican Party in the state, but there were plenty of other Republican activists. I was in Worcester, Ohio, where they used to make Rubbermaid products until Walmart stopped buying from Rubbermaid in favor of cheaper imports from China. And the Trump office, which was really the Republican Party of Worcester office on Liberty Street there, was doing a very brisk business in Trump lawn signs and also lawn signs for Rob Portman. And that's something that's an important part of the dynamic in Ohio is you've got this Senate campaign where Portman, who in in fact is one of the architects of the trade policies that Trump invades against, he was George W. Bush's trade negotiator, but he's been helped by tens of millions of dollars uh, from the Koch brothers for negative advertising against Ted Strickland, the former uh, Democratic governor of Ohio who's who's running to take his place in the Senate and who still main remains um, 10 points or more behind him in the polls. So the Republican organization in Ohio is basically, whatever they think of Trump, they are going all out to elect Portman, uh, and that is probably helping Trump. I know that you spoke face-to-face with some Trump supporters. What do they have to say? In Canton, what I found often was that Trump supporters would say they just didn't trust Hillary. So you would you would give them various things that Trump had said, various egregious remarks of his over the months and years, and they would say, yes, but I don't trust Hillary. I think one of the things the Democrats are counting on in Ohio and elsewhere is women not voting for Trump or women crossing over and voting for Clinton, and also respectable Republicans being reluctant to vote for Trump. And I didn't find any evidence of that in Ohio. In fact, I found the contrary. I found women at Trump rallies who told me they just don't trust Hillary. And I found pillars of the establishment, CEOs of corporations, uh, Republicans who said they were voting for Trump. They hadn't supported him originally, but he's the party's nominee. And for the Supreme Court, if for no other reason, they would vote for Trump. So elections are are won not by people attending rallies or or by bringing lawn signs home from the office, uh, not by people talking in coffee shops or tweeting. 
elections are won by people uh, voting, and the, the Democrats' hope is that their infrastructure will succeed in getting the actual votes. Your piece in The Nation is skeptical about whether they'll succeed, but as you've said, there have been some dramatic changes in the polls in the last few days. Do you think this is all because of Trump's famous uh, groping tape and and the second debate, or wh- what do you think is going on? Well, I think it's a really good question, and actually I don't think any of it's because of the groping tape, except perhaps some of the enthusiasm at the, at the Clinton rally the other day. I, uh, if I had to guess, I would guess that it has more actually to do with the leaked tax returns huh. and the possibility that, that uh, blue-collar Trump voters who have been sustaining the view that this guy speaks for them and is really one of them writ large, uh, are beginning to understand that he is not one of them. He is not on their side, uh, that he's someone who's always been only out for himself. I think, I actually think the tax returns hurt Trump more than the groping tape. Uh, We won't know that for, you know, months, if not years to come. But uh, that would be my guess, because I I left Ohio, a state that Clinton was going to lose, and it's now become a state that she might well win. And that was true before. There haven't been any polls, really, since the groping tape. So the, the polls that show Clinton closing the gap are since the tax returns and the first debate. And Nate Silver at 538.com has Clinton's chances of winning Ohio, something like 61% chance of winning. That's the polls only forecast. Uh, When you include their measures of historical and economic data, which, of course, we believe historical and economic data are significant, they set her chances around 55% today. This has been going up and down quite a bit in the last week. Does that make sense to you? And do you want to hazard a prediction at this point? Well, I, you know, we're good materialists here at The Nation. So, of course, we think historical yes. and economic data matter. And we also think it matters that the, you know, the Ohio Republican governor and the Republican secretary of state have conducted a huge purge of the voter rolls. Uh-huh. So the, the Democrats have been facing an uphill fight just to get their people re-registered. The deadline for registration in Ohio ends this week. Early voting begins this week. Uh, so we'll begin to get some data fairly soon. But but my guess is that if it comes down to Ohio, it's going to be a very long night on election night. D.D. Guttenplan, his report titled Trouble in Ohio, is featured in The Nation magazine this week. Thank you, Don. Always great to talk to you, John. Ten children killed by guns on one day in America. A random day, a typical day. That's the subject of the new book by Gary Young. He's a columnist for The Nation and a fellow at The Nation Institute and an award-winning writer for The Guardian. He's written several books. The new one is Another Day in the Death of America, a Chronicle of Ten Short Lives. Gary Young, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jim. Your book, Another Day in the Death of America, I have to say is both the saddest and the most upsetting and horrifying book I've read in a long time. How did you pick the day that provides the frame for the book, and how did you find the kids and their stories? The day I picked, it was the first date I could do. On average, seven children and teens are shot dead every day. So I needed a day with at least seven. And I know that 
Well, that's the average. They're more likely to die at the weekend. And November the 23rd was the first weekend I could do. Uh, now, of course, they don't all come through. You don't learn about all of them immediately. You know, it wasn't really until the end of the next week that I knew how many there were on which day. But um, I'd been away promoting my previous book, The Speech. I came back. This was just before Thanksgiving. And um, it, was, it was the first weekend I could do, the first day I could do. Pick a different day, you get a different group of children. And, you know, I found them by hook and by crook. There were 10 children died that day. Of the 10, I reached eight of their kin, family members or godparents or, or whoever it was. There was one family that didn't want to speak to me. There was one family in San Jose that I couldn't find. But otherwise, funeral parlors, people who buried them, Facebook pages, Twitter feeds. Uh, I reached out wherever I could find a lead. And uh, I mean, in one case, actually just going up to a range of doors that it appeared from the white pages when I matched it against the online obituary was probably that child's family and putting uh, letters in, in the doors and then with my phone number on and somebody calling me back. So tell us about a few of them. Your first chapter, Jaden, is that how you pronounce his name, Jaden? Jaden. Jaden Dixon. Tell us about Jaden Dixon, nine years old and black, and, and Tyler Dunn, 11-year-old and white. Jaden was actually shot the day before, but he doesn't die until November the 23rd. And so he's getting ready for school. It's a Friday. He's getting ready for school, and his mum, Nicole, has a rule. Jaden, if you're all the way ready, sock shoes on, then you can play Xbox. You can watch last night's Duck Dynasty. You can um, do what you've got to do. And so Jaden is, is ready when the doorbell rings. They think it's a couple of girls from down the road who sometimes come to either borrow sugar or get a ride to school. And so Jaden opens the door but kind of lurks behind it to kind of shout, jump out and shout boo, you know, when they come in. But nobody comes in. So he kind of very tentatively leans around the door to see who it is and bang, Danny Thornton, um, Nicole's ex-partner and the father of Jaden's eldest brother, shoots him square in the head. Danny Thornton then races off, shoots an ex-partner, uh, but doesn't kill her, and then is shot dead in a shootout with the police. It transpires that he told his son previously, I'm not going to be a 47-year-old man without a job living in my car. I'll, um, I'll uh, take your mother out. I'll make you an orphan and kill your brothers before I do that. Uh, and then I would die in suicide by cop, he says. So that's Jaden. Tyler is at a, a sleepover with his friend who we'll call Brandon. Tyler's 11. They're supposed to go trucking with Brandon's dad, Jerry. And they would often go trucking with him. They'd bring computer games and mess around. They would help him do a bit of the trucking, and he would, you know, slip him 10 bucks, 20 bucks. They're supposed to go trucking, but they tell him they want to stay at home play Call of Duty and just to hang out. Uh, Brandon's 12, Tyler's 11. 
And so uh, Jerry leaves them to it and uh, leaves them, you know, a bit of money for pizza and goes off tracking. He'll be back at 11. But while he's away, he's left loaded guns in the house. And um, Brandon's story is that he's, he goes, uh, he's showing um, Tyler the gun and um, then he goes to get a milkshake. And when Tyler's handing him back the gun, he gets caught on his uh, trouser pocket and shoots Tyler in the head. Uh, you also talked to to some of the families, most of the families, heartbreaking, mm. of course, but they said some amazing and unexpected things. I was especially interested in the, the mother of 18-year-old Tyshawn Anderson. Her name was Regina. Tell us about what she, what she told you. Yeah, Regina's Tyshawn's uh, godmother, and she... Um, Tishon's on the south side of Chicago. He's a he's a gang member. And uh, Regina says Tishon had bodies under his belt. In other words, Tishon had killed people. If I picked a different day, I could have been talking to the relatives of Tishon's victims. And she says, you know, he was a good kid. She knew him as a good kid. But she says, you know, he could be a bad kid too. And he had power, power in the streets, she says. She says that there's a way in which she was relieved that he died because now she no longer had to wait for that call. That she'd been waiting for the call about his death for some time now, and she was relieved that that wait was over. So some facts of of the 10 deaths, seven were black, two Hispanic, one was white. The average age was something like 14. Were any of them killed by the police? No, no. None of these um, deaths fall into the understood narrative of Black Lives Matter. So they, uh, none of them are killed by the police, and none of them, where the assailants are known, none of them are killed by someone of another race. So, you know, it's a big Republican argument responding to Black Lives Matter that the real uh, killer of uh, black people is is uh, other black people, black-on-black violence, they call it, and uh, Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter is just focused uh, in the wrong area by looking at the police, and they conclude that it's black culture or maybe it's black parenting that's responsible for the epidemic of black-on-black violence that's left so many black uh, boys dead in America. Uh, what what do you say to that argument? I mean, America is very segregated, and most violence is committed by people of one race against the same race. So overwhelmingly, white people kill white people, black people kill black people, Latinos kill Latinos. So what they call black-on-black violence and black-on-black crime would more accurately just be called crime and violence. Mm-hmm. So there is so there is that. I'm I'm not entirely sure what black culture is really because nobody talks about white culture. But it's a fact that black fathers are more likely to bathe and read to and uh, eat meals with their children when they're under five than fathers of any other race. Black fathers are more likely to be single parents than uh, fathers of any other race. And indeed, two of the children in this book are raised by their fathers. But primarily what I hope people get from this book when they read, not just about the kids' deaths, but their lives, is that for the most part, 
pretty much all of these kids that there is the capacity for empathy here, that these are not some different species of people. While statistically, if you're white or wealthy or both, then statistically these would be unlikely to be your kids. Are they so different from your kids or from kids that you know? Are the parents so different from the parents that you know? I would think not. They, for the most part, the stories of the, the, these children and their parents are kind of achingly normal people, often in tough circumstances, but pretty much the same kind of human and moral values as, as anybody else. What was it like for you to uh, to do the research, to write this book, to, to interview the, the surviving family members? Well, it was um, it was hard to find people. It was it was it was tough to find people. And um, what was interesting to me is it's it's hard to approach a bereaved parent and say, "Would you like to tell me about your child?" But that for the most part, they were very very keen to talk because their children had been killed, and it was almost as though nobody had noticed. Mm. The, the press, the, the children got very little press. The parents often weren't called. There was very little in the way of testimony about who these kids were. And so to have someone want to know more uh, about them was a, a way of kind of honoring their short lives. I mean, all of the responses I've had from the parents, and I don't sugarcoat their children's lives at all, but one of the responses I've had from the uh, family so far have been very positive. So, Gary, you're a, a, a black man from Britain. You're married to an African-American woman. You have two little kids of your own, one one a boy. You, you must have been thinking about your own kids, your own son, when you wrote this book. One of the things that really shocked me in writing this book was the degree to which all of the black parents, when you say to them, did you think this could happen to your child, to a person, they say, yes, yes, I, you know. The mother of uh, Samuel Brideman in um, Dallas said, well, I didn't think it would be him, I thought it would be his brother. Oh. The father of Gary Anderson in Newark says, just frankly, you know, you're not doing your job as the father of a black child in Newark if you don't think they could be shot. And it was at that point that I really realized that I uh, interviewed Dr. Maya Angelou in 2002, and I asked her about the 9-11 attacks, and she said uh, African-Americans have been living in a state of terror in this country for over 200 years. And that was really when I got a sense of what she was talking about, that for African-American parents in low-income areas, what they're doing is really struggling to keep their kids alive. It's that basic. Gary Young, his, his heartbreaking new book is Another Day in the Death of America. Gary, thank you for doing this book, and thanks for talking thank with you. us today. Thanks a lot. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, by Ernesto Orellano, with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. 
Ellen Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.